Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt, and we're here with Michael Lundin. We're at his home in Yamhill County. It's May 12, 2022. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. As you know, our first question is going to be why wine? The, the short story, followed by the long one, is that it, it captured my imagination and my sort of puzzle-solving skills and never got boring. Um, long story is I was at the University of Oregon, where I had started in architecture and then studied in damn near every <laughs> department that existed because I was just fascinated. I was an avid learner and um, loved all of it. And then eventually it was like, oh man, I need, to, I need to graduate. I better tighten this up a little bit. And so ended up in journalism. Uh, and that was great and, and interesting and popped out in 2001, uh, right in the tail end of that, <clears throat> that dot-com bust recession, and so couldn't find any jobs anywhere. And a, uh, I just kind of started to get into wine. I just planted first here on um, Poverty Bend Road with my dad. Uh, but I was still drinking off of the bottom shelf at the grocery store. You know, I didn't really know much of what I was doing. Um, but a friend said, hey, harvest is coming up. And I made a bunch of phone calls. I like, well, give this a try. Why not? And I only got one phone call back. Uh, it was Laurent Montelieu when he was still at Willa Kenzie. And he had me come out. Uh, I worked, you know, 30 straight days or something. And... Like so many people say, uh, you know, light bulb just went on. It was it was fascinating and interesting. You know, it was, uh, it was gastronomy and agriculture, chemistry, history and geography. You know, I'd spend the nights <clears throat> just reading uh, Jancis Robinson's uh, Oxford Companion of Wine just because I wanted more and more and more. Um, and that continued for a while and worked a few harvests there. Then uh, was able to uh, work in the tasting room some and begin to diversify the experience. That is something that has always been fun and interesting to me is really, uh, I won't say mastering, but really getting intimate and getting good at all the parts from the agriculture all the way through the winemaking and honestly to the sales and the public consumer part. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was taking classes at Chemeketa um, with Al McDonald uh, originally, which was, I mean, so fortunate for me that I was able to spend, a, you know, some of those seasons with him when he was still doing that, because what an awesome resource. Uh, and then later Barney Watson doing the, the wine making enology part, and again, wonderful people and a great education. Uh, meanwhile, I, I mostly continued my education through the through the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, there was obviously a lot of growth around here. Uh, at that time, beyond what I even really understood. You know, I was in my mid-20s, and I was living in Portland and commuting out, and I just sort of fell into my first real work um, after college, and certainly not what I expected um, to, to start to get into at all. 
uh, you know, couldn't find any journalism work, but I'm fond of joking that I actually got <laughs> one paid gig in journalism where a friend of mine was, was editing an online architecture magazine. And so he asked me for, uh, for a piece about a winery, but an architectural perspective. And so it sort of put these three parts together that I had been steeped in at that point, architecture, journalism, and winemaking. Uh, wrote this little article, it got published, and I was like, hey, I used my degree. Excellent, I'm out. That was the last one. Um, and I never looked back, because uh, I, I had no interest. Uh, you know, wine was just pulling me forward. Even though it took years and years, I remember sitting in a bar with a friend when he asked me a very simple question that hadn't occurred to me at that point yet. It was like, what about winemaking as a career? Mm -hmm. At that time, it's still, I don't know what, if I thought I was uh, insufficiently educated for it or if it was uh, something, an accomplishment too far out of reach or something, but it was like, oh, that is a thing you could do. That's a thing I could do. Mm -hmm. What do you know? Uh, and, you know, I'd been in it several years at that point. Uh, following Willa Kenzie, I got a job up at Domaine Serene when Tony Reinders was there. Worked with him and some other great people. Learned a ton. Uh, worked with great vineyards. Um, made some great wines. And <clears throat> that was 03 through 05. And at that point, made, uh, made friends with an Italian winemaker who'd came over and worked with us at Domaine Serene, Mario Andrione uh, of Castello di Verduno, and now his own project, 499, all in Barolo, Barbaresco, in the Altalanga area. And he one day was like, Michael, why don't you come work for me? And I was like, that is the best idea I've <laughs> ever heard. And I made plans. I quit my job in Domain Serene in August and went over there for three months. Uh, worked in the vineyards, had a little apartment over the winery, worked in the winery. We made Dolcetto, Barbera, Longa de Biolo, uh, Barolo, and Barbaresco. It was awesome. It was also exhausting because almost nobody spoke English. Uh, there some young people that were eager to learn and, and practice, but um, <clears throat> it, was, it was awesome, transforming experience, of course. Uh, and it you know, could have led to some very different path mm -hmm. uh, at that point. However, mm, 10 months earlier or so, I had met the woman who is now my wife, Desiree. Um, and so that was always in the back of my mind as we were trying to juggle time zones to talk on the phone and, and all that sort of thing. But uh, I was happy to go back, of course, and that led, has led to wonderful things. And, but I became, at that point, the kernel, the little seed had germinated about starting my own wine. Um, over there in Barolo and Barbaresco area, <clears throat> you know, there's homes. Um, mostly somewhat modest, some, some more grand, but you know, all through the hills and all over the place. Thousands in a, a fairly small area where the most intense uh, quality winemaking happens. And every single one has a little winery in the basement. Uh, you know, usually families been making wine for generations. Some of them have gone commercial, various degrees of success, whatever. But it was a very cool sort of eye-opener um, because there weren't a lot of especially successful, high-quality, super-small producers here. 
there was a bit more <clears throat> medium and large investment had you know the uh, domain Druins had come through and started that model and you know and I had been at domain serene like big money big big time um, but I realized there like oh you don't have to be big you can mm -hmm. just be good um, and and the rest will come through well that's <clears throat> easier said than done of course but it uh, it became it became kind of the the mission mm -hmm. at that point and so I came back um, and you know worked around and about tasting rooms and and uh, off-season production as I could and then um, I had become friends at that point already with Brian and Joe O'Donnell at Belpont uh, and we made an agreement. I went to work for him in the next vintage, which was just 2006, and that's when I made my first commercial uh, lot of wine from this vineyard here. Uh, my first 50 cases of Pinot Noir uh, from here, and it was a fabulous harvest, uh, a strange harvest. I remember 90 degrees in October, uh, very hot vintage. Not all the wines were wonderful, uh, but it was an awesome season. Mm -hmm. uh, the wine turned out fabulously, and I still somehow have you know ten or eleven bottles, and I open one every few years, and it's a great it's a great look back all the way to the start. But um, <clears throat> that you know that said, I was not in a financial position, uh, despite being very fortunate here to be on this property where I'm now the third generation Lundeen. My son is the fourth who uh, has his grandfather's old bedroom and, and that fun. Um, but I was not, I was not interested uh, or able in trying to make some push to, to a winery or, you know, I've always been, despite my occupation, somewhat risk averse mm -hmm. um, and so slower was, mm -hmm. was better. Uh, I also think I understood I had a lot to learn still. So uh, I continued working for others for quite a while. After, uh, <clears throat> after Belpont, that's when I was doing more of the education with Barney Watson. And there I met Brad Ford of Illahi. Uh We became friends and he was, uh, you know, they had their vineyard and they were just planning the wine project and he asked me to join on. Um, I thought it sounded awesome. We and we basically took it from a farm all the way to a pretty sophisticated winery situation. Um, the first the first harvest was in the pole barn at the bottom, and I remember, boy, it was 2007, uh, hot summer despite the the rains we all remember from harvest. But you know, I spent the first couple of months all trenching water lines, pouring concrete. I learned to drive a dump truck. It was great fun. Uh, we were insulating and building out the pole barn. Uh, and I knew, okay, we're eventually gonna do some winemaking. <laughs> but for a while, it was everything else. Um, and that, it ended up being spectacular. We made a great wine and a very challenging vintage. Uh, got us into IPNC on the first try. Uh, it was great and we were off to the races. Built the winery up the hill, <clears throat> um, which was fabulous, and did another uh, couple of vintages up there. And then we, uh, you know, that's then when we hit another economic speed bump, of course. And 
Uh, it was a tricky time to try and launch a new brand. Mm-hmm. Very tricky. Uh, we were having some early success, but you know we needed significant growth to really make some of the vision happen and work mm-hmm. right. And you know we got a few more vintages in, and it was uh, right after 2010. And Brad comes to me and he's like, you know, we're we're doing well, but we're we're not selling enough wine. I don't know if we're going to be able to keep you on. And at that point, uh, I was married, and we had moved out here, and things were going great. Um, but we just just learned that we were pregnant. Not too long before, and I was like, oh my goodness, uh, dreams crashing down, I'm about to lose my job, my wife is pregnant, holy cow, where, where uh, is this going to go? And then, like so many other good things, serendipity just kind of happened. Um, I am a definite believer in, you know, being open to opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, having your mind be open, having your heart be open, uh, good things happen. You know, it's not just all dumb luck. You have to participate, but uh, there's a lot when you stop trying to control it, there's a lot of cool stuff ready to happen. And in that moment, that's that's kind of what happened. And a friend of mine randomly, I don't at this point remember if I reached out to him uh, looking or if he just <clears throat> had a thought He's very well connected through through the scene. Drew Voigt, mm-hmm. uh, we'd been friends since working at Domain Serene together, mm-hmm. and uh, he just happened to tell me, hey, I, uh, I've heard of this position down in Walnut City. Uh, Miguel Lopez is there, and he's leaving for a new adventure, and, and I think they need somebody. This was immediately following Harvest 2010. Um, and so I called up, and I spoke to John Davidson, and went down for an interview, <clears throat> and it was one of those where, you know, you're going in for an interview and you've done the resume thing and whatever, but what it turns into is like a two and a half hour conversation with somebody that you know you've just made a very important friend and connection. Um, I somehow knew, and something special happened for sure. And so, you know, I went very quickly from this position of, oh God, what am I going to do, to Holy cow, what an amazing opportunity. I get to take over this program and this facility. Uh, when the traffic is light, it's only six minute commute from my house. Hey, everything's coming together. It was fabulous. Um, you never know. And so, yeah, began the long and complex work that that adventure has turned into. And that was now, um, 11 and a half years ago mm-hmm. and huge amount uh, of my growth and development um, and real comfort in, in any skill has happened a lot of it has happened through that period and it's been it's been wonderful uh, and we're actually in kind of an exciting inflection point regarding that place and transition but I'll come back to that uh, I like to go through things chronologically. It just helps <laughs> me keep track of what's going on. But, um, so, you know, we began doing the thing. And Walnut City is owned by two, two gentlemen, John Davidson and John Gilpin. Uh, they also own a sister company, St. Joseph Orchard, uh, that has, does vineyard management. And 
so I began to get inserted to that, uh, began just as winemaker, mm -hmm. uh, but eventually then just grew to fill up vacuums of responsibility, if you will, uh, and eventually became general manager. Uh, due to my aptitude and also interest in all the different parts, uh, I was also able to grow into the viticulture and growing side, as that's always been interesting and important to me, as well as being able to manage sales teams uh, and everything else. And fortunately, John and John, uh, I learned a lot about how to sort of take care of people and how to, to lead uh, sometimes by recognizing things they weren't doing, but um, there was education in there. They were always very generous and always acknowledged that it's the people that make all the dreams happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have to start there. Um, <clears throat> but grew through all of that and have met a lot of people over the years. There was a lot of custom crush work done, uh, still is. Uh, and so I've made many different wines for many different people over the years, as well as the Walnut City brand that I took over at that point, and of course, Lundin. Mm -hmm. And so the Lundin wines, when there, then was able to really start growing a little more meaningfully. Uh, I had a really good stable foundation. I had gradually made some good distributor contacts and began to grow the brand, the sales. Um, as well as the connection to all these different projects and viticulture clients allowed me some really interesting opportunity mm -hmm. then to source different grapes. Um, <clears throat> many of the years that I was working there, I would be making wines from almost every sub-ABA at that time mm -hmm. that existed, uh, save Ribbon Ridge, but we would have grapes from everywhere else. So great education in terroir comparison, uh, techniques, uh, all of that, whether it was for myself or for others. Mm -hmm. uh, also became very enamored with really what we at Walnut City consider the, the sort of estate vineyard, uh, which I am in, in current uh, future-looking endeavors trying to gain uh, sort of a lease, long-term lease control over uh, to be able to work with it for the rest of my career, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, La Terra, it's up above Rex Hill on Quarry Road, and it's awesome. I've made sparkling wines and rosés, red wines, everything. It's wonderful. But I um, can't remember. I diverged from somewhere there a minute ago. But um, the education part, was was fantastic and to their credit John and John after a little while realized I was doing a pretty good job uh, picking up the the slack and the loose ends and some of the funky wines or, or neglected uh, projects um, and and running things well enough that they really were happy to just start to have a hands-off. Mm -hmm. uh, I would come to them for, for big, high-level, important stuff, but otherwise began running all of it. Moving into the viticulture a little bit later, um, maybe five years ago, uh, really started six years ago, starting to get more involved with that. Um, and that part has been not only rewarding, uh, there's a special challenge to farming, you know. Mm -hmm. You have to have a real 
<sighs> willingness to embrace the uncertainty, um, <laughs> but it is a great uh, personal interaction with nature and trying to figure out how can I get the highest result with the least input. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I approach it. Uh, to that end, moving all of the vineyards that I currently farm for myself and some clients uh, towards organic and really looking to to peel away uh, the unnecessary effort and inputs and really, really get down to just the core of what the vines need and how to express those places. Uh, and once those pieces started to come together, it began to add more layers to Lundine as well. Um, this maybe is where I tell some of the story. So now Lundine, uh, at this point, you know, I'm 1,500 cases of wine a year and growing uh, still wines and sparkling wines. And um, the, just because I'm sitting here in mid-May looking outside at what almost feels like still late winter weather and this just incredibly weird challenging spring that we're having um, it's reminding me of another super challenging year and I'm you know trying to muster the optimism around this vintage is some of what it is mm -hmm. uh, you know obviously not only have we had insane April that had 70 degrees and had killing frosts and snow <laughs> uh, we're barely now through bud break in May and it's obviously no matter what going to be a very late harvest with unknown quantity of fruit. Some people have very little. Mm -hmm. um, but the vintage it reminds me of, uh, it makes me think of, Not maybe not reminds me of, but makes me think of is 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, which, <clears throat> you know, my first reaction is often like PTSD, sort of like, oh God, not that vintage. It was oh, so, so hard. The summer never got hot. Uh, the benchmark I remember is that I couldn't eat a tomato out of our garden until September. It was so cool. Um, waiting forever for grapes to ripen. There were people who picked in November. I mean, it was insane. Um, and I, <laughs> there were some very good wines made in that year. Um, None of those were Pinot Noir red wines that I made. <laughs> oh, I, I think back horribly on those wines. Uh, you know, we made it through, we learned a lot, whatever. But the part that stands out as the positive is that was the first year that I made base wine for sparkling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had this lot of grapes from La Cantera that I'm supposed to make red wine out of, and, you know, there's very little color in the skins. At the end of the season, I uh, looked at the chemistries and like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to make red wine. That's what the hell am I going to do? Uh, I had long been a fan of Champagne and Methode Champenois by then, and with a little bit of guidance from Rich Cushman, I uh, was like, yeah, let's let's make uh, let's make a base wine, see what happens here. And of course, it was just spectacularly appropriate fruit. Uh, made a killer Blanc de Noir from it. Hindsight then, several years later, was like, oh, I wish I'd made 10 times more of this, you know? But at the moment, it was this huge leap mm -hmm. uh, into the unknown. But it was, uh, a little, it was proof of concept um, and, and learning about technique. And 
it turned out so well, I began to lean into it and move move more towards that. Mm. Um, and ironically now have come to look back differently on that vintage because of it. Um, and in the same way that the Champenois right now may be somewhat lamenting climate change as it's changing their industry and their wines very profoundly, um, I now prefer that very cool vintage that I swore at and suffered through and whatever over some hot ones, mm -hmm. um, at least with the sparkling wine in mind. Uh, far superior, far easier in that cool vintage to make a really beautiful, ageable sparkling wine. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, what were we talking about? Um, you know, learning from your mistakes or changing, changing your mind a little bit, uh, trying to stay open to that. What can I learn from all that? Mm -hmm. uh, and some of that, you know, to cut to the chase in this vintage is I'm thinking perhaps I should be making more sparkling wine than I was planning on. And I was already planning on making quite a bit. <laughs> um, but uh, too early to, to tell the whole tale on the, on the vintage, mm -hmm. and we'll see where it goes, obviously. But um, that became then the kind of the exciting growth part of my wine program over the last 10 years then is the sparkling. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously I've made red wines I'm very proud of now. I'm making still Chardonnays that I'm, I'm very fond of, um, and these are selling well enough. Um, but the sparkling, uh, I was really pulled forward at that time more just by the excitement mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. um, not even the market excitement, which has now grown quite significant. There's a lot of action. Um, but I was out in front of quite a bit of that and just figuring I will, and the joke was kind of beauty of sparkling wine is you know you can make a bunch of it and you lay it down and now I've got six or eight years to figure out how I'm going to sell all this stuff. <laughs> and meanwhile it's just going to get better with every passing year that it lays down. There's some truth to that and some joke to that. But um, really found fabulous result. Have made Blanc de Noirs and Blanc de Blancs blended uh, brutes that I'm very excited about. Mm -hmm. um, and then things really started to take off around here. And I found myself pretty well positioned for some of that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I won't say that there's a lot of reputation yet far and wide, but I continue to be flattered uh, you know, with some frequency of people talk, oh, they've heard about this sparkler or that, and they want to inquire. And this is usually industry folks. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, obviously, that's the most flattering uh, when your peers tell you something about your wines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, yeah, so we're now, I guess I can, I can race through that whole Walnut City period um, a little bit to the latter parts. You know, we've had some great vineyard managers and then as we've helped them move on to their next adventures, um, I stepped in in part to fill another vacuum but also do a thing that I like to do and became vineyard manager for many of these sites. Um, as we transitioned into the last couple of years, um, I began to, to carve that down and really it's um, it's now more about feeding the program, mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, my wines, my clients' wines, um, not necessarily farming for outside groups mm -hmm. as much. Um, there are other outfits that may be better suited to some of that, but um, 
you know, somehow we navigated 2020 uh, with a combination of, you know, creativity, um, some support from the public and government programs, um, and we had to do a lot of quick thinking and learning from mistakes and, and carving away. And we are one of the organizations, not only those that I'm working for, but like Dean, you know, we're better off now um, because we did a lot of trimming and we had to not be lackadaisical about strategy, but really say, okay, what do we do? What are we good at? Mm -hmm. Let's lean into that. Uh, what isn't working? Let's throw that overboard immediately. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, led to some hard conversations in certain cases, but it really, it really tightened things up, mm -hmm. and so then things were, were running quite well. Um, and that then put put us in a pretty good position for the big kind of transition that's coming in my world. Uh, and the timing of this interview is kind of funny because it's right in the middle of this very important period. Mm -hmm. um, I. Uh, through a, a long series of conversations and opportunities that didn't quite pan out, came to uh, realize that some good friends of mine who are also in the industry uh, were interested in working together. And we've been friends for a long time. Uh, they have great experience uh, at all kinds of levels, hospitality. Uh, we have made uh, an arrangement that they're going to buy into a portion of Lundin, and we are going to spread Lundin's wings and try to fly in this big transition year of 2022. Uh, you know, the industry around us is changing hugely, and we'll get back to that, but internally, I've kind of set the stage well. Um, John and John are now quite ready to sort of retire the whole thing. They're ready to be done. Uh, we began some of that process a couple of years ago, trimming down production, uh, making some arrangements. And so what we're working on now is I'm going to take over the building. Uh, I'm going to lease it, take the clients. I'm buying the stuff from them. Uh, the goal is, you know, help them retire, uh, but also you know, carry the work that I've done for them, with them, forward, make it my own, uh, and really go for it now. And so there's a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement at this point. And when the participation of these friends of mine came in, I knew it was the right thing because all the fear went away. Hmm. Uh, I had resisted doing this, making this move for a long time, and I didn't. I didn't quite know why, but I knew I wasn't ready. And I'd had investor offers for years, uh, good people that I trust, but I, I knew something wasn't right. And I politely told them no thank you for years and years and years. Um, and I have since then figured out when this puzzle piece fit in, uh, it's because I, I had kind of maxed out what I could do. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's always been this challenge of, of bandwidth, having all these different hats and all these different jobs, and there's a symbiosis to it, uh, and it lets me do a lot of cool stuff, uh, and some of it quite well, uh, but it also means I don't 
I have enough time to develop other skills and flex other muscles. And um, I was having this unconscious acknowledgement of that mm -hmm. um, while turning down these offers. Because I am now come to see what I was doing was, you know, I've kept this company my own only uh, for 16 years now. And I'm at the point where if I want to reach the next level, uh, go farther, I have to trust in some other talent, mm -hmm. is really what it is. And um, waiting to be connected to the right talent is really, I think, what it was. And so once, once their willingness and interest was there, it became very easy to trust and say, oh my gosh, to bring on people who, who are excellent at hospitality um, and who know how to make consumers really happy and connect all the parts, mm -hmm. let's do this. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, and so all the puzzle pieces started to fit together after that. Uh, and we're currently in the process of negotiating all these parts, but plan to plan to launch uh, a new club and sales effort late this summer um, here at the vineyard and then being able to operate down at the winery. Um, and with sparkling as one of the two major prongs, you know, I'll continue to offer Pinot Noir and still wines. Um, but now with this timing and excitement, um, being able to really focus on a high-end sparkling program. Uh, I don't necessarily, you know, I tend to be fairly humble or I try to be. And so it, there isn't a, an ego notion of like, I wanna, I wanna be the name or I wanna, you know, I want to beat out X, Y, and Z, um, but I absolutely want to be at the table with some of those characters, and I think I think we have the potential at this point, and I couldn't have imagined saying that just a few years ago, honestly. Um, but yeah, the stage is set for some for some exciting exciting times. It's really exciting. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, I don't even have to ask you what's in the future because now I know what's yeah. in the future for you. I have so 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 many questions to come back to, but yeah. I want to back up for a second and talk about the property here for mm -hmm. a minute. We talked a little bit about before, kind of pre-interview about this, so tell me about the property here and about its its, its vineyard history. Right. Um, so where we are here is is on Poverty Bend Road, and we call it Poverty Bend Vineyard for obvious reasons. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's a lot of historical uh, question and irony in the name. Um, and the old, uh, the old story my dad tells is that the naming of the road, it was Rural Route 2 until the, the 50s, I think, or 60s perhaps. And they, they let the people who lived on the road vote on the name. And at that time, it came down to Poverty Bend or the name of a local farming family that I won't mention. Um, and instead of naming it after them, they chose Poverty Bend Road. So that tells you something. Uh, it's obviously a cute, quaint notion, and thankfully there hasn't been much poverty around here in quite a while. But um, my grandfather bought the property in late 40s, and when they moved here, uh, you know, my dad was young and his older sister Nancy, they lived in one of the 
used to be quite common, but not many of them around anymore. These late 1800s. Uh, two-story things all built around a pot-bellied stove that did all of the heating and all of the cooking. And so my dad tells stories of remembering being very cold, <laughs> a lot. Um, but then they built this this lovely house in the early 50s. Um, and he grew up here uh, and then went away to school, uh, first to Carnegie Mellon and then graduate degree at Stanford in civil engineering. Um, the he owned it with his sister, and they got to the point in the very early '80s where they decided they wanted to sell it. Well, I now, looking back, am quite thankful that the economy being a total mess in the 1980 or '81 meant that they couldn't find anybody that would buy it. And so my dad bought out his sister, and so it was entirely his. They continued to live in Salem, and that's where I grew up, but rented this property uh, for all those years. And I'm so thankful they did, because then eventually enough time passed. Uh, those renters, some passed away and moved away. And my wife and I were ready to make that move. And it was in conjunction, it was actually right around, I think it was related to the changing from Illahee to Wallet City. And that was really the beginning of the feeling of like stuff coming together. Mm -hmm. You know, it was sort of geographical, but there was a there's a philosophical or kind of a metaphysical part of it too. It's like, oh, coming home to this place, um, and you know, wanting to care for it and carry it into the future, mm -hmm. uh, be successful enough with my business endeavors that I, you know, can keep this for our son. Um, and share it with folks, honestly. So it's been it's been a hugely fortunate thing for us. Um, getting to the vineyard part, you know, my father, in his gentleman farmer desires, as I mentioned, I'm looking out at him right now, planted the Gewurztraminer, this little block of Gewurztraminer. He got cuttings from Myron Redford um, Amity way back when in the early '80s. Stuck them in the ground, and God bless them, these vines, they can be kind of hard to kill. <laughs> they just don't screw them up too badly. Uh, he was no kind of farmer and is uh, you know, a very, very smart man, uh, you know, master's degree in civil engineering, but he was not really any kind of farmer. But again, uh, his traipsing into this sort of a thing worked out very well for me. And I don't know that uh, it was necessarily done for me, but we are close. I'm fortunate to be close with my parents and other family, and so there's always been natural progression, you know, from one generation to the next of all kinds of things. Uh, well, when he retired from the state of Oregon uh, in 2000, then we got to planting some of the rest. He wanted his uh, retirement project, and I was kind of just getting going with some stuff in this industry. Um, and we planted the first couple acres, Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir. Uh, began to fill it in after that, but there, the land around uh, had been many things over the years, mostly orchard. There are remnants of old volunteer cherries and nuts, um, some walnuts. Uh, all kinds of things, you know, industries that have sort of come and gone from this area. 
Uh, and it's interesting to, to look at that history, mm -hmm. to respect that history, and of course, further, much further back than that, there's all kinds of interest in thinking about the history that really is here. We've found uh, native obsidian arrowheads on the property down by the river, and uh, I think it's important to reflect on folks that lived here an awfully lot longer ago than we are now, mm -hmm. and how the story is a lot a lot longer than we sometimes think of it. And we'll see where it all goes. But um, <laughs> the funny story I like to tell, I mean, it's not funny, it's kind of sad, but um, it, it leads through history. The story of Walnut City, um, for much of the early 20th century and some of the late 19th century, walnuts were the number one agricultural crop for Yamhill County, hugely important. Uh, we have a photo in the winery of this old guy for this exposition cracking these nuts open. He's um, at the Atticus Hotel. They have a reproduction of this uh, sort of display arch. And it was for this, this walnut exposition to show the world what we could do in Yamhill County with walnuts. Uh, in 1903, I think it was, or very early 1900. Um, you know, big, big industry, that location in town had been for Walnuts for a long time and then they built a new building and it was like the packing and processing house for much of the county's Walnuts uh, from 1951-ish forward. And then in the early 60s, what around here they call a Columbus Day storm, huge hurricane force winds, basically blew down all of the Walnut orchards almost overnight. They're these big, slow-growing trees, so they were catching every bit of the wind. And then these farmers afterwards were like, you know, these trees take a generation mm -hmm. to grow, mm -hmm. and they, they couldn't replant that. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, it moved to all the things that we've seen in the late 20th century, the cherries, the hazelnuts, into some grapes and other things. And almost overnight, the whole industry just evaporated, and you know, we don't often look back, and that's you know one of the cool things I think about what you guys do is making sure that we see history mm -hmm. and have it to reflect upon, mm -hmm. don't lose it. But um, you know, thankfully the the building was there and was kept because it has really been the the cradle of my career at this point. Um, and it's funky, and some days I hate it, but it allows me to do some good work. I've made wines I'm proud of and happy to, happy to be going. Um, but now, you know, this, this property is uh, a lovely spot, but there's not much room for grapes. You know, I've got about two and a half acres here, and that's probably all that I can really fit in sort of appropriate ground. But thus the... The, the good fortune in, in finding other vineyards mm -hmm. to, to farm and to lease and mm -hmm. to work together with owners uh, to have enough grapes. And, you know, early on when I made that first batch with Belpont, you know, I was able to take the, the whole production and make my 50 cases. And it grew and grew into a product that I call Mon Père. It means my father in French. Um, there's a big footprint, a little footprint on the label, and it's kind of meant to tell our generational story mm -hmm. here. Uh, and also honor my father, obviously, for helping me do this, but he's not the kind of guy that would really want his name on a bottle of wine, and so this, this is a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it always starts with Pinot from this place, and even though it's meant to really be a, my Willamette Valley 
offering. Um, there's always lots of notes that to me are very telltale of this vineyard, sort of tart cherries, uh, gravelly, uh, slaty white pepper aroma, cedar notes, things like that. Uh, so it still speaks to me of this site, even though now it's grown much bigger. I don't have nearly enough grapes for the long pair bottling, uh, but it, it always starts here. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the, excuse me, the early days. You mentioned working for Laurent, working uh, for Tony Reinders and others. Uh, obviously, working for a variety of different people, a variety of different approaches and philosophies and workflows and all of that. Mm -hmm. Tell me about sort of uh, creating your own along the way. What point did you kind of mm. feel like you had your own sort of philosophy style? Mm. What were you taking from people? What were you, both positively and negatively, what were you taking away from your experiences? And at what point did you feel like you actually had like an opinion about winemaking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Because uh, I'm one of those people that took a long time for me to feel like I had, uh, you know, yeah, a distinct opinion mm -hmm. and a position. I've always had a lot of opinions about all kinds of things. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, ask me a question and I'll give you all kinds of opinions. But... Um, you know, it took me a while to feel legitimate in that way. Um, and I'm not exactly sure when, uh, but I, I definitely went, you know, in the, in the first 10 years really being a sponge, just wanting to take it all in, um, you know, learning from Laurent, learning from, from Tony. Uh, I learned plenty of things about, about technique and they're both very good in different ways at making wine and have very good palates. Uh, but I learned plenty of things about how I didn't want to make wine mm -hmm. and exploring other approaches. Um, and it was probably somewhat in conjunction with taking over Walnut City, honestly, where I, I had to be the guy. Uh, and I certainly had John Davidson as a mentor. He had plenty of winemaking experience at that point, mm -hmm. cultural experience. But uh, that I was also really introduced to whole cluster fermentation methodology for Pinot that, I re that really resonated with me. Um, I had not been especially successful with it, uh, but it was more shooting in the dark. Um, and, and they had a, a method that had kind of come from a winery called Flowers in California. Um, and I began to work with that quite a bit more. The libel really started to go on there. You know, there's this sort of parallel for me um, ideas about learning about sparkling and learning about the still wines because they're you know they're obviously importantly hugely different, mm -hmm. but they were happening at the same time. Um, speaking now about the still wines, the the learning about and developing and refining methodology around whole cluster became a very big foundational kind of light bulb going on for me. Um, big reason why many of us do this here and fight and struggle with Pinot Noir is how beguiling and transparent and storytelling it can be. Obviously when it's great it's like nothing else. Uh, and so everybody's happy to beat their head against the wall and, and try and reach that that great height. Um, it's damn hard to do. but. It really, you know, shows you place so profoundly. And we have this interesting, beautiful place here in the Willamette Valley with these very distinct different soil types. You know, some winemakers will talk a lot about dirt, and I'm very happy to do that also. 
the difference between Willikensee sediments, the volcanic, uh, the freshwater Missoula flood sediments, uh, wind deposited soils, and the very big, important, different impact it has on the resulting Pinot Noirs. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was like one of the really fascinating grab me parts and it was developing the whole cluster technique that really allowed me to feel like I had the right way to tell that story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have come to believe that stems now are a really important part of expressing terroir. That is a very controversial statement obviously and there are plenty of winemakers who hate stems and they think it's terrible and it gets in the way. Um, I happen to feel differently about it. Uh, the stems taste very different site to site. Mm -hmm. And when that came to me, it was like, oh my gosh, we're throwing away a huge amount of the transmitter of the taste of the place. Um, now that said, they're not always, they're not always appropriate to use. Uh, they don't always have as much positive affect to offer as negative. Um, but when the conditions are good, when the vineyard is right, because um, there are some vineyards that I just can't get the stems to, to be appropriate. Mm -hmm. And I haven't exactly figured out if that's farming or soil. I struggle more with, with Dundee Hills um, stems, but a lot of other places. And so now for me, if I'm endeavoring to make a, a vineyard designated wine, a wine that wants to tell the story of a place, stem inclusion is critical absolutely absolutely critical and you know so I'll have the only amity stems that taste more woodsy uh, like you're walking through a forest in late summer you know lignified branches and some starting to dry leaves uh, up in the Chihila Mountains La Cantera this this vineyard site kind of the stems can it tips into more uh, more mineral gravelly uh, white, white pepper, black pepper, uh, completely different from that other. And then there'll be sites in Yamhill Carlton where they, uh, when they get sufficiently ripe, they, om they almost present no aromatic impact, but the structural impact then is, is critical. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, when you do it right, it absolutely makes a superior wine. And that, having that solidify gave me the Okay, this is a thing I believe. For me, this is true mm -hmm. with Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. That was probably getting from about into 2016, mm -hmm. 18. Uh, so 12, 14, 16, and 18 were all very personally successful years with red wines and with whole cluster in general. Through that similar period, um, I was beginning to disgorge sparkling wines. And so getting over to that side, uh, I was really beginning to see the early efforts come around and pay off uh, and begin to, you know, if you don't have the benefit of growing up in France, uh, having five generations of family before you learn these lessons for you and then imbue you with all your wisdom, you've got a hell of a learning curve in front of you. Uh, I was just having drinks with Kate Payne Brown last night and we were talking about sparkling and we could just talk all day about it and that notion about there's so much to learn so fast mm -hmm. that it's it's difficult and um, I think I have a mind that deals well with complexity uh, and trying to take a lot of noise and find the, the patterns in it and how to not drop the ball in the meantime and that has served me well with sparkling. So getting to disgorging 
in that similar time frame, 16, 15, 16, 17, 18, the wines that I have made in 11, 12, 14. Um, those light bulbs are really going off, and I was, I had to admit, I think I'm making pretty good sparkling wines at this point. Uh, and I could have some very, you know, solid opinions about what I prefer. At the end of the day with sparkling, um, assuming that the quality is, has been preserved and is inherent, the rest of the conversation is just about style. Mm -hmm. There's so many dials to turn and levers to flip or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that it's like manipulative or something. There's just many opportunities to steer, mm -hmm. to accentuate this or that. Uh, I now will hold things on Tourage for quite a long time. Uh, that's a commitment that I made that, you know, I'd like to joke that it's the fiscally most stupid thing you could possibly do in this industry. Uh, but the hard part is really only getting started. Once you're there and you've got some wine, you just start scorching it. I mean, the results are spectacular. Mm -hmm. And it's now easy, easier for me to sell a bottle of sparkling wine at double the price of a bottle of Pinot Noir. Um, the quality's there. There's not a huge amount of it around here still. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, to specifically answer the question, I think by uh, probably 18, I'd say, okay, I think I know what I'm doing here, maybe. <laughs> uh, 12 years later, a, I guess. It's a good long learning curve. a winemaker, <laughs> yeah. Um, not that I want to stop learning. I obviously, I, I know enough now to know that I know very little. It's one of those. Uh, but I feel competent. Mm -hmm. So with that said, obviously you mentioned a big part of your work at Walnut City has been making wine for lots of people, making lots of different, lots of different wines, lots of different clients, lots of different projects. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how that works for you in terms of finding that middle ground between your kind of natural the decisions you would make, the decisions the client makes, and how you're making unique products for all these different people at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's... Some of the, the process I began to realize I took to very naturally because there's something uh, that really works for me in it. Um, there's often an element of relationship. It's, for me, it's not really just transactional. Um, I tend to be to call many of my clients' friends now, mm -hmm. and it really feels quite collaborative. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's often a matter of helping them achieve what they want to. And so it's a fun process of uh, exploring what is it that they want to achieve and then talking about how do we get there. Mm -hmm. um, the, the whole concept of, of the custom work that I do though is now kind of evolving. Um, I continue to do it and will continue to do it, but I began to realize that um, I was interested in sharing that experience and knowledge in a, maybe a more meaningful way a few years ago and began to think of it more as mentorship opportunity, really. Uh, I have a few clients now who are still, they're, they're good in business, you know, they, they operate in other states and they have me make wine to take to those places and, and it works out great, but many of the others, uh, and certainly new ones, are, are newer, sometimes younger, but aspiring winemakers. Um, and I kind of open the door to them to say, Let's, let's treat this as a mentorship brand incubator kind of a concept a little bit more. It makes it more interesting and rewarding for me. Um, it obviously presents 
really valuable opportunity for them, you know, as we'll get to talking about, you know, where the industry might be going and how it's been changing. One thing is definitely that the, uh, the production opportunities for small uh, projects has gotten very tight, very difficult to find. And so I happen to have that availability and opportunity and um, so happy to, you know, let these little itty bitty projects come in, one tons, two tons. Mm -hmm. um, and we work together on it and often then as a mentorship brand incubator scenario, they really are happy to work on the wines. And so it's, it's not, you know, I'm not necessarily making it for them. I'm often standing over their shoulder uh, and being like, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> Have you thought about X? Uh, things like that, you know, making sure that nothing's going to go sideways. But um, that, that's, you know, far more interesting and, and rewarding at this point for me. And also, you know, I had the experience to help them with fruit, uh, availability, concepts, uh, sales, Ideas, how to approach the three-tier system, just business management. One of the most important lessons I learned uh, over Walnut City and moving into being general manager was, you know, a reminder: this is a business. Uh, I love to approach it artistically and and move with my own inspirations and insights. But at the end of the day, you got to pay the bills. You got to make the wheels go around. Um, and that's often not a skill that many of us that get into this biz uh, have when we start. Mm -hmm. Some people, for sure. But, um, you know, I definitely try to offer some of that guidance to some of these small brands. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really easy to buy fruit and make wine. Um, but make sure you got the whole picture in mind. What's the right amount? How are you going to sell it? Have a business plan. Make it tight keep working it. And frankly, that, I mean, this is no secret, but when that part is, is more sound, it allows you more comfort and ability to be expressive with the other parts. Uh, you don't have to agonize over the, how to keep the, the wheels on the bus when you got the plan. And then you can really, yeah, focus on the creative parts and making the best wine. You talked earlier about Especially with sort of the single vineyard idea and the story, the story of a place, which is of course a term we hear a lot uh, mm -hmm. from winemakers. And mm -hmm. that. tell me, in, in your opinion, what does it mean to tell the story of a place in a bottle of wine, and and, and what, how do you, how do you relate that to a customer? Mm. Hmm. Um. Well, the the goal would be to include as many layers uh, of the story as possible. I mean, I think that the richer it is, which is to say it's not only about what flavors emerge out of a glass after making wine from a place, but thinking about the place in time, um, which is to say it expresses the vintage as well. Uh, it may express something about the property historically or the owners. Um, many, many layers and, you know, wine is very much an experience economy. People by a feeling of participating in wine when they go to a tasting room or when they, when they buy a bottle of wine after meeting a winemaker or visiting a vineyard or something like that. Uh, obviously the good flavor is something, but it's, it's that 
experience mm -hmm. that that people want to take home and remember. Mm -hmm. And so, um, <laughs> I'll say it differently, but come back around to the to the single vineyard part. One of the other bottles I make, I call articulate. Uh, I make an articulate blanc and an articulate pinot, uh, chardonnay and pinot noir. And the name came from, you know, I was riffing on a wine using a lot of $10 words, as I will, uh, trying to express it. And my wife made some comment uh, astutely uh, about being articulate. And it was like, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, I want the wine to say all those things. Not only so I don't have to, uh, <laughs> but it's more convincing when the wine does it. And so trying to take that notion of, of the expression uh, and put it into the wines, which for me, uh, it, it kind of translates into not getting in the way. I don't make especially stylish wines. Um, new oak is not very important. I think new oak can do wonderful things to resolve a wine, uh, but it very quickly can, to me, get in the way of expressing a place. It just has to be used very carefully. Uh, one thing that I have also come to really appreciate is that the marriage of uh, new oak, new French oak barrels and whole cluster stem inclusion really does something very special. They work better when together. It doesn't show on the wine as much when you have the stems. And sort of conversely, it helps uh, bring around the structure. So. For me, what that, some of the, what that translates into is that as I'm trying to express a place, using high percentage of stem inclusion if possible, 40, 60, 80, 100%, depending on the vineyard and the vintage, um, some of those will go into new barrels to try and really pull that structure around. Uh, the challenge is it makes the wine you know, in, its, uh, in its density and its process of resolution, it gets very unexpressive uh, for quite a while. And they can be very dumb, <laughs> quite honestly. And I got really freaked out when I first did this in 2012. I made a whole cluster bottling. There was a couple of different vineyards, um, but 100% whole cluster. And it kind of had this great texture, but it didn't smell like anything, almost, for years and years and years. But then it began to do magical things that Pinot Noir can do. And so that was some of the the light bulb's going on there, and you just have to be patient um, and let the wine unfold on its timeline. So those, those are a couple of the, mm -hmm. the notions of how I would express you know, place. Another is um, ripeness, obviously. I mean, for much of the Oregon historical viticulture time, I think people were just trying to get the grapes ripe enough. More was always better. Well, somewhere obviously in the last 20 years, you know, things really started changing in like 1998, 99. Uh, our viticulture got better too, obviously, but we got to the point where, oh yeah, you can really go too far. Mm -hmm. um, and so I heard this great, great quote uh, from a winemaker at IPNC many years ago where he's like, there's really two kinds of winemakers. Those that are afraid to get too ripe and those that are afraid to not be ripe enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I realized that that what drove my decision was the fear of getting too ripe. Um, tannins do wonderful things when grapes get super, super ripe. But I think 
when the acidity and freshness is lost, you lose the soul of that wine. I think you lose some longevity and you, you lose the ability to really express that place um, and do it in that really beguiling way that great Pinot can. Mm -hmm. So the picking decision, uh, you know, one of the most difficult, obviously, but that part is really crucial in expressing place for me. Uh, if it's a wine that just, you know, needs to generally be delicious from the Willamette Valley, it's not as agonizing. But if I really want to show La Cantera Vineyard or, uh, you know, Sylvia's Vineyard or Poverty Band Vineyard, mm -hmm. making sure it doesn't get too ripe uh, is one of the very most important things. You talked earlier about how you were kind of learning your trade sort of twice at the same time. You're kind of learning the still wine and sparkling wine at this, at this sort of similar timeline. Mm -hmm. So obviously we've had a lot of winemakers talk to us about still wine, but mm -hmm. maybe if you were talking about sparkling, so tell mm -hmm. me, you've already talked a little bit about kind of some of the special parts of it, but mm -hmm. for you, tell me about the learning curve for it and tell me about, especially early, the, the market for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the learning, the learning curve is is tough. God, what did somebody say just the other day? It was like, um, like building an airplane while you're flying it or something. <laughs> it's like an unimaginable uh, challenge to learn quickly enough. Because uh, you know, the, to break down the the general process very briefly in method champenois, the traditional method, uh, you make a still base wine. Uh, age it in any number of different ways, go to bottle with some more sugar and yeast, put a crown cap on the bottle, it ferments inside, and that's where all the pressure, all the carbonation is produced through that fermentation. Um, surprising amount, up to 90 PSI. And then you age it in that bottle. And because of the yeast, there's obviously some, what we call lees in there, there's the, the spent yeast, and it lives in that state for a while, entourage we call that, and that part is critical and defines a lot about the style. I mean, all the points are important, mm -hmm. but um, something magical happens when you rest on there. Uh, it really resolves the, the, the palate and the acidity, uh, the, the mousse, the creamy expression, and it takes time to get there. Um, but when you're there, then you go to the next phase, which is called riddling, tip it up, uh, all the yeast falls against the cap and you disgorge by popping the top and that pressure pushes it pushes out the yeast. You're left with the clear wine and you may then finish it with a final dosage affecting the, the final sugar level, maybe some sulfur, maybe a little bit of another wine as vehicle for the mm -hmm. sugar, uh, but really little tweaks at the end. That process um, has to take I mean, if you're going to do a decent job, in my opinion, well, in Champagne, I think legally you have to lay the bottle down for 15 or 18 months. It's the absolute minimum to call it Champagne. For me now, there's no point in getting after it any less than two years. And really, I think something special happens when you cross three years. And so at that point, uh, from the minute you harvest the grapes, make that wine, go to bottle, age it, disgorge it, package it, get it to market, could very easily be four years. The other thing, problem with that, sort of getting to your question, is you don't really know the result of most of those choices until you get way down that line. 
Uh, obviously, we will open bottles along that path, check in on them. That's opportunity uh, to learn something about the choices. But you know, taking that back to my history, you know, I made base wine in '11, and then I had to make some base wine in '12. Um, before I knew anything about how '11 even went. Very different vintage, obviously much warmer, uh, smoke crop. At that time, I was farming uh, what has now become a very well-known vineyard, Bunker Hill. Uh, it's Salem, spectacular Chardonnay site. I farmed that and made base wine that, to date, may be the best sparkling wine I've ever made. And I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I knew how to good make, make base wine. I mean, I'm a good winemaker, and that's something really critical involved. But it wasn't until years later that I began to have the opportunity to learn the, the impact of all those choices. Um, now you can taste with other people, and I do, and you can taste their base wines. Um, you know, there used to be a great technical summit that would happen at Anami, uh, Thomas Hausman would put together, where producers would get together and we'd taste base wines and we'd try to learn from each other. But if you kind of don't have the time element, uh, for me it's difficult to learn anything about the cause or effect of some of those choices. Mm -hmm. You know, you can put a little bit of stuff into context, but we, we often are looking more if X than what. That's how we learn something. That's how I learn something anyway. Um, so as we were going through, uh, it probably wasn't until, yeah, as I was saying, you know, 14, 15 into 16, where I really began to learn the effect of some of those. Mm -hmm. Um, and then begin to lean into the results of some of those. A lot of a lot of winemaking, <laughs> we you know, general public doesn't always know this is what are just the logistical realities of your operation? Uh, how do you make decisions? Which pieces of equipment do you have? For for champagne and sparkling Method Champenois, the specific press plays a big role because they get the juice out uh, differently. And my press is small, it's not a great juice press, and so I tend to make kind of phenolic. There's a lot of texture in the sparkling. Um, that is not what would be considered sort of classically ideal. Uh, there's usually a, a notion of, of gentler pressing, more transparency, less phenolic weight. Um, is better. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't really have the option. I didn't have the money to buy another press, so I went with what I had. Uh, and I'm a little bit developed a bit of a style around it. And one thing it's allowed me to do, I think, is if I wait long enough, I can use less sugar at the dosage. Uh, not only is that somewhat fashionable, but um, I prefer the wines that way. And you don't need that dose to. Um, you know, resolve this very transparent palate with the acidity sticking out. There's there's already a more or a more vinous wine there. Mm -hmm. uh, the structure being held up by sufficient full pressure and acidity, um, and then you do you get the benefit of the time on the lees creating that mousse, mm -hmm. and that does much of the job of resolving. You don't need the sugar to do it. Um, but I then began sort of doubling my production almost annually. Um, 
leaning into it. A little bit was like, well, geez, how much wine am I going to need four years from now? <laughs> uh, but also, I wanted to learn more, so I created more lots and Blanc de Noir here, Blanc de Blanc here. Let's let's learn more. Uh, I then took the additionally, you know, fiscally irresponsible step of holding reserve wines, and that is when things really get real in Champagne. Um, and it's brilliant. It just it takes up space and it takes a lot of forethought. Um, but the idea in my program is then I will hold wines, typically in barrel on lees, typically Chardonnay, for years and years, <sighs> waiting to get blended into a base wine. So the result is a non-vintage wine, but it may be, for example, based on the 21 vintage, and it could be 60% from 2021 and it could be 20% from 2019, and 10% from 2018, and 10% from 2017. And that is one of the cuvées that I tiraged this last time around. Um, what happens when you have that pre-aged wine is the layering of flavors and complexity is awesome. Uh, and there's all, basically no other way to achieve that. It doesn't buy you the same on lees aging benefit that the time after bottling does. That's mm -hmm. more about palate resolution. But for the layering of the flavors and the complexity of the wine and the taste and the aroma, totally awesome. Uh, and so now, most of the wines that I'm producing are non-vintage wines because I want to capture that benefit of reserve wine inclusion. Sure. That um, was sort of my later build up and I've really gone hard into that uh, and I think that's going to become the defining part of the style of wines really mm -hmm. which may mean I go to not having very many vintage dated bottles uh, which is also a little bit unusual around here you know, it's very common in champagne and I think certainly high-end consumers understand that notion but around here you know with all the excitement and sparkling there's a lot of people getting into it um, but they're kind of dabbling. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't say it to be critical, like whatever, it works for them, but they, they want to make a little bit and sell it in their tasting room. Um, they're not committing to a program. They're not making large quantities. Uh, so they just they make a batch. It gets vintage dated. They sell it. Mm -hmm. They make another batch later. Um, that's fine. The consumers will enjoy it. I don't know that it's going to move our industry forward here with regards to sparkling wine. If there isn't enough to distribute, if there isn't enough for anybody to taste beyond who comes and visit your tasting room, um, but it's fine. It's all working together, creating excitement for it. People are learning, um, helping some of these people do it. Uh, but I have, I have <laughs> committed to uh, a, a much bigger, much bigger play in that direction. I don't think I came back to the second. Or one of the latter parts of the question. Just finding a market for it. Obviously, you mentioned it's oh, it's, yeah. it's a bigger deal now, certainly every every year. Right. But when you started making it, it was not really a thing in Oregon yet, outside of a pretty, couple of big producers. Right, right. You know, Soder, Argyle were known. Um, Saint Innocent back in the day had made really great sparkling. He was almost like too far ahead of the game, and he made great sparkling, and then he got away from it, and I think has since come back to it. Uh, but yeah, there was very few. Uh, brands and early on I got a little bit of play just because I wasn't Argyle it was a little bit ironic but whatever helps get your foot in the door um, 
you know, at that time I was doing my own self-distributed wholesale, kind of like I do now, and so I was going up to shops. Uh, and thankfully, uh, these were, you know, some of the best shops around, and um, very flatteringly, some of them had really, really great things to say about the wines. You know, I would take them to uh, Liner Nelson, and they would they would be stoked, mm -hmm. and they would buy, you know, everything I had on offer. Um, and the guys at Avalon, Andy and Marcus, and um, they would love it, and they'd help me blow it out, and they'd find people who saw, who got it. And they, it didn't need to be even almost a category that existed. If you had a sufficiently sophisticated consumer, um, they get it. Mm -hmm. They'll get it. And so a little bit of help from my distribution, which is mostly on the East Coast. But the challenge there, and this is something that's difficult for us on the West Coast to navigate that a little bit, is because of the distance involved, um, buying champagne over there is m like a legit, you know, labeled champagne is more price competitive uh, with some of our products, you know, having to navigate through the three-tier system and get shipped 3,000 miles across the way. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit harder push over there. Mm -hmm. um, and I get that. But so it's really been local. It's been word of mouth. It's been winemakers. Honestly, I have an industry club because there are plenty of winemakers who love the sparkling wines um, and they want to be able to get them and support and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, early on it was kind of a, it was kind of a slow build. Mm -hmm. But uh, also, you know, events like Bubbles Fest uh, that Anami puts on, a great, a really good time, uh, but it's entirely around sparkling wine and those are the kind of events that the industry has needed. Um, and now I'm very happy to go to that. It's a, always a great time. I sell everything I, I bring and the customers, they get it, they get it. So, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't actually can't fairly comment on what the actual state of awareness is about, you know, Willamette Valley sparkling wine, but there's obviously uh, there's obviously a lot of chatter and a lot of excitement starting to happen. Mm -hmm. It always begins, it seems like, with producer excitement, and then we try to get trade, you know, and reviewer excitement to follow, and then eventually consumer excitement hopefully comes along with. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the, the proof of concept is already there. Argyle has made awesome wines, and Soder has made great wines for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, and shown what's possible. You know, the extended tirage thing that Argyle does, 10 years, laid down before the disgorging. Totally awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, and inspired some of the choices that I have made. And so some of that pathway was already certainly blazed, but after just a little bit of word of mouth and, and excitement has gone out there now, it's, um, it's a, I won't say easy, but it's a, it's a very fun thing selling sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. It is not pushing a boulder uphill at all. Yeah. My next question was going to be about, about selling wine, and obviously it's changed a lot in the time you've been selling wine. It's a much more crowded marketplace in, in Oregon and, and in yeah. nationally and in the world. So if sparkling is easier, what about selling in general, selling wine in general? How has it mm -hmm. changed, and, and how do you sort of feel about, as you're kind of taking this next big step forward, mm -hmm. how do you sort of feel about prospects and, and selling your wine? Um, between supply chain and inflation, 
sort of stuff that we've experienced, uh, uh, unlike anything we've seen in decades, we've almost witnessed more impact, I think, on the market in the last year. Um, different impact than pandemic that brought its own tragedies, obviously, of operations unable to continue, distributors going down, restaurants, the just awful experience. Um, but from a competitiveness and price challenge and everything else, I, I almost think the last, the last year has been more changed than uh, decades before it. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the stage has been set for a lot of those other years, and what I think is we're just seeing the dominoes starting to fall. Um, part of the push that I'm making is what a lot of this industry around here has done in recent years, which is to say um, the good work that this industry has done over 50 years has brought legitimacy to this area, real interest, and therefore much tourism. And so a lot of the way forward for a lot of folks is through focusing on direct sales mm -hmm. efforts. Uh, I tend to feel like a balanced approach is always the best way to go, but what we're seeing now with costs getting, you know, going up on everything uh, much more rapidly than we expected, bottles and grapes and everything, um, some of what happens there is it makes your ability to sell through distribution on certain products impossible. Mm -hmm. And that's been the real challenge there um, because, you know, out in the distribution world, there's a, a natural uh, gravitation towards the most um, consumer available reasonably priced wine, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And those are always the low margin ones, you know, in, in sales lingo sometimes they're loss leaders for certain people, uh, which is always a terrible idea. But, um, you know, it's gone to the point where maybe there was a product and you had a little margin on it a couple years ago, and in the last couple years that has disappeared. And you can't necessarily just say, oh, hey, by the way, distributor, I'm going to raise my prices 30%, mm -hmm. and thanks for continuing to buy it. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, no, that puts it at a price that we can't sell it anymore. Or it just it won't work in that same way, or we can buy 10% of it mm -hmm. as we used to, something like that. Mm -hmm. So all the parts have to change kind of together at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I don't necessarily know how others... Um, are navigating that. I'm a little bit late to the direct to consumer game uh, because I have slowly built my sales through largely through distribution and modest margin, uh, but with very good, reliable, committed distributor partners that I've been with for boy 14 years in one case uh, and more than 10 years in another case. Very, very good um, and. So once again, embracing the talents of others to move my business forward, we are now having to, to push forward on direct sales. And so some of the, some of the plan is we're, I'm hiring my, my very first employee um, to, to take care of sales and club for me. And we're going to you know, basically make, make the big push um, to finally actually tell my story a little bit more thoroughly as well as make these wines available 
et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, there has been an under the radarness because I haven't had necessarily time to promote the brand. Mm -hmm. I can tell you how many times people are like, oh, I've never heard of your wife. It's like, well, 12 years later, I'm not exactly surprised. Uh, and this, this retailer in front of my Aaron Palmer, um, you know, has this great line that we both say, it's like, you know, someday it's gonna look like an overnight success of 20 years in the making. Uh, and, you know, and that's where she's at, and that's where I'm at, and that's where a bunch of us are at. But uh, finally getting around to the part of, of telling the story fully, uh, and being able to share that experience and sales experience with people to achieve those direct sales goals. So as part of your answer there, you obviously talked about some of the recent challenges, and you brought up many of them during this interview. Mm -hmm. So obviously the last few years have, have brought a lot of challenges to the, to the world in general, but obviously to the wine world specifically mm -hmm. in some ways. So tell me about sort of the various challenges, uh, pandemic, uh, the 2020 harvest, obviously you mentioned even just a couple of weeks ago, the, the frost mm -hmm. here in 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, what have you had to kind of either adjust or learn or decide on in the past couple of years to get through and and do you feel like you've come out the other side in a good spot mm -hmm. um, yeah the man the double whammy of 2020 with you know the profound economic ramifications uh, I mean beyond just the existential fear of the pandemic and, and public health and safety and personal health and safety, but the, you know, the economic impacts were, were profound. And then, as you said, the, the smoke that occurred um, that really shook a lot of operations to their core. And I, I knew as I was looking outside at these brown, red skies, like, a whole lot of us that survived the pandemic part may not make it through the smoke part, and I know a number of operations have shuttered uh, after that. Um, through you know hard work and quick thinking and no small bit of luck, for sure, uh, we navigated some of that by getting better at direct sales. In the same way everybody started ordering things that get delivered straight to your door, we knew very quickly that, that was gonna be essential. Uh, and so we got more sophisticated in, in how to do that. Um, thankfully, I had already begun sort of focusing my inventory uh, creation, getting smarter about how much was bottled and sort of bottling less of certain things. And then Mother Nature just gave us a lot less fruit. That was the other thing about 2020, it was a really small crop. Mm -hmm. um, and the underlying quality, as I'm sure you've heard many times, was astounding. Um, I have chosen to bottle, as a side note, um, a number, a fairly small quantity, but a number of single vineyard offerings, the most I ever have in one vintage from 2020, because the wine underneath the smoke effect is absolutely incredible. Mm. Uh, and I want that to be preserved. I want that to be explored later uh, by myself and by customers that get it. They want to see the wine part of that. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, some of the dumb luck part was just making a lot less wine. And so then, was when it came time to release 2020 wines, I didn't have nearly as much to sort of deal with. Um, and I really, I can't take all the credit for that. I had. Yeah, that was just kind of dumb luck, I'll say. <laughs> Selling fruit, uh, contracting, positioning mm -hmm. to, be, to be leaner and meaner. Uh, it definitely was also a good 
a good thing to be a sparkling wine producer in in that vintage because that is absolutely a direction that you can take theoretically affected grapes and make a very fine wine with minimal to no impact down the road. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have enough fruit to make a lot in that vintage, uh, but certainly what was made was awesome and those wines will be great. That was a lesson uh, that I have taken that a number of others have about, you know, a theoretical uh, mitigation strategy, if you will, for future, you know, we, we know damn well that it's pretty likely we will have to deal with wildfires again. Uh, I mean, it was shared with me the report that was written, I don't remember if it was like Department of Forestry or somebody from the state of Oregon, uh, you know, a paper written in the 50s that basically identified the Willamette Valley as having a huge risk to wildfire because of our forests in the Cascades and the dry conditions that exist from the Great Basin in the late summer. Uh, we just never really had it go off until mm -hmm. more recently. And so we assume we will again. Um, a lot of other producers obviously can't just start a sparkling program overnight just because they have to deal with those grapes, but now having a program built around it, I feel much more assured if I have to say, okay, I'm going to take 25% of the production and then, you know, going to move it from still over to sparkling because this is happening. Um, I feel like it's not, uh, you know, a, a risky half-cock move that there's some real intelligent foundation in it. Um, and whether that's you know great design or dumb luck or somewhere in the middle, who's to say? But um, feeling good about it. Mm -hmm. As for navigating forward, um, you know I couldn't I couldn't be more kind of optimistic when I think about the wines that we have and the talent of the team that I've been able to put together and what I think we can do. Um, but some of the uncertainty about what the industry is becoming uh, is the real is the real wild part. Um, you know, we're—I don't want to say we're becoming victims of our own success, but the changes that are happening now are so rapid uh, because of that success. Outside investment coming in, buying wineries, vineyards, buildings. Um, because they know something special is happening here and people are excited to come and share in it and enjoy the wines and many of us will benefit from all of that and you know metaphorically we've talked it's like a wave that is coming and we want to catch that baby and surf it into the future um, but at the same time it becomes challenging for some of us especially you know sort of mere mortal operations that are not uh, enormously funded uh, externally to navigate that. I have friends who are, you know, great winemakers and, and good business people, um, you know, honest and fair, uh, you know, losing huge amounts of their fruit contracts because vineyards were purchased recently and things are not honored and things move forward. And so how do they, how do they carry forward? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, that is one of the big pieces that I'm trying to secure is John Davidson, one of the guys that I'm working for, uh, brilliantly created these long-term 
land leases many, many years ago um, so that he would have fruit to work with through his career. And there's enough time left on a couple of them that as a part of what we're all doing, I am endeavoring to buy those from him so that I know I'll have good grapes to be able to continue this work in the future. Because, mm -hmm. boy, you know, if I didn't, uh, I would honestly be a lot more nervous about navigating the open market at this point. It's gotten really tight and really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you talked about that earlier. Uh, I'm curious about that. Uh, one of the things that we've seen is the change from the archive side is the, 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 the large number of very small projects that mm -hmm. have taken off in the last decade. Mm -hmm. um, and. And that seemed to be a, a trend going forward. Uh, so tell me, in your perspective, as mm -hmm. you as you've seen that, is that something that this is going is that going to change? Is that still going to be a trend mm. going forward? Mm. Man, that's a that's a really good question. Um, when I step back and I look at it, I think I see two very powerful but sort of competing uh, forces impacting that. One is, I think the reason that we've seen that is that there's enormous consumer interest in the individual stories of these small producers and of the really interesting wines that they're making. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, the market is pulling them forward. But then working against that, there's these logistical and economic challenges that we're sort of talking about. And of course, small producers are always on the wrong end of diminishing returns curve um, and all of those access points, um, I think there will just have to be a reckoning, uh, if you will. Some of them won't be able to continue, or they will keep it so small, it is their, it's their you know, weekend warrior passion project while they have their day job. Uh, that's how many of us you know, even get started into this, and some of them will just not be able to transition past that. Mm -hmm. And that'll be fine. Maybe they'll still be able to make really cool wines that they want to, and they can get to consumers that love them. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be others that I think it's just too difficult. So in the current conditions, you know, we've just had, we're now probably looking at our third small crop year in a row. And I don't think that's happened probably since the 1990s. Um, we've had very large crops through the teens, mm -hmm. and that really made all kinds of things possible. Not only did it keep grape prices down uh, and more accessible, there was kind of ample supply. Well, that tightened up really fast, really, really fast. And so um, that, that combo part of pricing and availability is going to be the thing. Um, that's probably the limiting factor. I mean, production space, as we talked about earlier for a small project, is, is hard, and I am helping some whom I can with that. Um, but I do think the sophistication level is going up around here. It has to. Mm -hmm. um, the bar, the stakes are going up, and there's only, there's only so much we can do about it. But in some ways, I think it's been a long time coming and due, and it's just the process of getting there that's painful. Um, there's only so much vineyard land around here. Uh, there can only be so much Pinot Noir made, and I think it probably should be a higher-priced, somewhat limited, hard-to-get item. Um, you know, it's more extreme in Burgundy uh, because of the the limits of the space and the hundreds of years that they've been working on this, but 
the supply meets demand thing is kind of the same. Uh, and so I think it's people who've built their brands on availability that's impermanent, um, on pricing that's impermanent. Um, they're going to have to change or change or go away. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to trying to navigate some of that myself, and I'm just thankful I have a little more head start on some of it, and have been able to build some good connections. But those pressures are intense mm -hmm. uh, for me as well, and I'm trying to think about how do I how do I do that. Mm -hmm. What else do you see as you look ahead for Oregon Oregon wine industry? Uh, are there are there things on the horizon that you're excited about? Or things on the horizon that you're fearful of? Hmm. Um. You know, I think we are all even underestimating the coming market success of the Willamette Valley. Uh, I think the demand is going to grow even more than our optimistic hopes are showing. Um, you know, market research done by uh, you know, Oregon Wine Board and others shows that the, the growth and success of Willamette Valley wines is just about beating every other wine region on planet Earth. Um, and I don't think that I don't think that is going to slow mm -hmm. anytime soon. I really think we are finally just getting recognized uh, to that next level degree. That then brings some of the complex existential challenges that we got to as well. But I think I think those of us that are in it to win it are gonna are gonna see a lot of success, and we're gonna make hopefully pretty good wines, but have a really excited, willing audience coming here to get them. Um, I do, I do believe that, and that will, that will help everybody. Quite frankly, as long as you have a way to get your wines to market, that's, you know, everybody's gonna do well from a producer side. The challenges, uh, absolutely, you know, with with one foot in farming for a very long time, I always think about those issues and what's involved. Everything from you know fair labor practices and farm worker treatment to and limited availability of workers, the need to mechanize and the challenging costs therein, um, to the biggie, which of course is I think um, you know climate change driven agricultural challenges. And I'm not on the forefront of those uh, you know research related releases about what's happening, but I think we're experiencing it already. I think it will grow um, quite a bit stronger. And of course, it's, it seems to be, and I, you know, I see this in this vintage and certainly over the last 10 vintages, increased volatility. Mm -hmm. It's not a reliable trend line of anything. It's that what's happened is getting you know, again, we have 70 degrees and we have 28 degrees with snow in the same month of April. Uh, both of which are really weird to occur in that month. And last year, 117, 120 degrees in June. Um, that is going to be the big wild card. And of course, you know, the, the fires are right in there with it. Mm -hmm. um, for better or for worse, those are challenges that we all are going to share and there is a lot of working together in this industry uh, in Willamette Valley and Oregon 
you know, be it from educational research institutes or a trade group or a producer or cooperation. Uh, so I, you know, I think there's hardworking, creative solutions to some of this stuff. But, um, you know, on the climate, just to get back to vineyards for a sec, you know, on the uncertainty of warming, um, that there does seem to be a trend line of like growing degree days, warming going up. Uh, even if it's really doing this on the way up. Uh, and so one of the projects that I have been working on and developing a vineyard this year is with really far future in mind. I uh, found a courageous vineyard owner who has been... <laughs> is, is there any other kind? Yeah, yeah. Um, willing to plant grapes at 1,400 feet in the Chehalem Mountains. Really high elevation in this area. Uh, and a little bit of it is even north-facing. But we're currently designing the whole project around the idea that in the short term, I think it will be spectacular for sparkling wine. Uh, it will ripen slowly. I think the expressiveness we'll get at the appropriate chemistries will be incredible. And then if that trend line really does continue, well, maybe we'll just have fully ripened red Pinot Noir in 20 years, and you just have to be on the tops of mountains to be getting it. Mm -hmm. But we have to be yeah, looking for sort of creative solutions and maybe things that seemed crazy um, 10 years ago, but got to have some vision. Different rootstock choices, uh, things like that. You know, we're, we're now going back to deeper rooting uh, rootstock choices that actually delay ripening, sort of the opposite of the conventional wisdom for the last 25 or 30 years. Um, things to help us in that un unknown future. So you mentioned earlier, you kind of you kind of dropped dropped the big future plan for yourself here. Mm -hmm. that's, that's coming up. Um, what else for you as you look ahead? I mean, obviously that's that's a huge amount of your your immediate future. Uh, what do you see for yourself down the line in the wine industry? What do you kind of hope to accomplish, and what are some of the things you haven't tried yet that maybe you want to try? Hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah, I see, uh, as for my, you know, where I'm going, um, the process of trying to create this new vision of, of Lundin that we're pushing forward, uh, excitedly reaching out with still and sparkling wines in a direct consumer way, but also controlling the vineyards to do that allowed me really for the first time to be thinking about the encapsulated period of the rest of my career. Uh, and maybe that's just getting old and you start thinking about the future in different ways. But, um, you know, long-term lease, there's a term of 17 years left on one of these vineyards I'm trying to buy. And when I first, you know, said that duration out loud, I was like, you know, I'm probably be ready for retirement in like 17 years. Maybe I start thinking about this as a encapsulated project here. Um, and we've got a long ways to go, but I'm definitely feeling um, I'm feeling enough success, shall we say? It's not it's not a financial thing, but I'm feeling satisfied in what I've been able to accomplish from learning how to make wine from a qualitative artistic product standpoint, how to run a business, how to include other people in it. 
And so some of what I'm transitioning into is um, really being able to facilitate more for other people. Mm -hmm. uh, in the first step, that's really more about employees. There's a certain amount of it as, you know, we're always cooperative. This is an amazingly cooperative industry in general. And I have a number of, you know, winemakers in my cell phone that if I called them right now and told them I needed help, um, they would be all over it. But those that, you know, um, are not as far along in their career, those are the ones I'm now thinking about, these small brand incubators uh, or young energetic people looking for their way forward in the wine biz. Um, like, I, f I feel like I see my charted trajectory at this point. Um, and so I'm, I'm more interested to see, okay, what, what can we build together? What cool things we, might we be able to accomplish <laughs> um, that I didn't see possible, but if you involve some other people. Mm -hmm. I've also got, you know, the, the part of this that gets back to climate that I haven't talked about is there's a, a goal that's not official yet, but really what I would like to see if it's possible is, and some people have already started to do good work on this, but if I can accomplish the qualitative production goals that I have, but doing it in not only maybe a certified sustainable facility, because I've run a live certified winery for a number of years, but even going as far as maybe like a net zero, um, can we build a model of a top tier qualitative winery, but that can do it in a responsible way with respect to natural resources, water, power usage, pollution, etc. Because um, at the moment, obviously, there's people around here making great wines and they're just burning up as much fossil fuels as they can and using as much water as they can legally get their hands on to do it. And maybe there's a better vision that could be charted forward, but it's a challenging one. So those are, those are some of the bigger, bigger picture exciting things I see out there. Um, you know, if I can help continue to teach and uh, facilitate access for some of the things I have, that'd be great. Um, I don't know, yeah, I don't know if that ever like looks like an actual teaching gig or anything. I don't know that that's, that's something I'm good at, but uh, I don't know. I know a lot of stuff and have a lot of opinions at this point, so <laughs> I'd be to share them with people. So last question for you. Um, we had talked, you talked earlier about the sort of the generational aspect of the land you're on and the vineyard here. So do you have any thoughts on Lundin as a, as a possible, uh, as a possible legacy project and looking, mm. looking forward and living, living beyond you? Um, I'm, I'm leaving that question entirely for the future. I don't have any designs or goals on it. Um, you know, it does bring me back around to something hugely important to me that I actually didn't bring up here is that, um, you know, no matter what I accomplish with my job, uh, I really truly feel the most important work that I will ever do is being a father to my son. Um, it's been hugely rewarding, <laughs> very fun and exciting, and also maddening and challenging. Um, but but super important. And some of what that has meant to me is that I really, I want to do everything I can to help hit, prepare him to be 
a sentient human being who goes out into the world as a you know fully fledged person can explore it for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, there will absolutely be work for me that he has to do, and it looks like there's chores and other things like that. Um, but I would only really begin thinking about as a legacy thing if he all by himself went out to the world and came back and said, Dad, I think I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any need to try and mold him into the, the next version. So mm-hmm. we'll see. I mean, I'm open to it. It would be cool. Uh, there's also a certain amount of like ego stroke involved in there, and it's a little personal approach of mine that I, I, I tend to try and avoid mm-hmm. decisions that are largely for the benefit of one's ego. As much as possible. As much as possible. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Um, I feel like there was another part to that question. No, that's it. No. That's it. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Excellent. One step at a time. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything okay. I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have <sighs> I'm sure I could easily go on and on and make a play to become your longest interview ever. Um, you know, nothing is, nothing is coming to mind. Yeah, it's a it's a fun and unusual biz. I never expected to get here. I mean, that's the beauty of life. I guess you you end up in places you don't expect, and hopefully you find success and satisfaction there. Um, and I and I totally have. And we'll see we'll see what the future holds on this wild adventure. But I'm having a good time. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality, for sharing your stories, and for breaking the news of the future of Lundy and Wine for <laughs> us, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.